from Beacon Point. This is Dollars and Cents, a really great podcast about money. Co-host and certified financial planners, Kobe Cress and Karen Reifel, help listeners navigate various life moments and major life events through the lens of personal finance. Contrary to popular belief, these money conversations are not boring. Prepare to be informed and entertained. Welcome back to another episode of Dollars and Cents, a really great podcast about money. I'm Kobe Cress, and with me, as always, is Karen Rifel. Karen Rifel, that's all you got for me today, Kobe? I can tell that the honeymoon phase is over. Karen Rifel extraordinaire, financial planner, the best of all time, just Karen, huh? Let me take that one more time, listeners. With me, as always is wealth advisor extraordinaire, Karen Reifel. I'm flexing my muscles. Thank you, Kobe. Oh, you're so kind, too kind. You really shouldn't. It's so great to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? Great to see you as well. Always excited to record another episode uh, together. But first and foremost, you're doing well? I'm good. Everyone everyone in the Reifel household is good. Good. I'm glad to, he- to hear it. The Crest household is in the same shape, so that's great news. And listeners, we have a special show on tap for you today. Uh, and if you've grown weary of listening to Karen's voice and my voice over the past seven or eight episodes, then I have good news for you. Uh, we have a special guest uh, joining us today, and you'll be hearing a new voice for the first time, but certainly not the last. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy uh, today's episode. Today, we're going to be talking about interest rates. We're going to talk about how they're determined. Why do they matter to the economy? Or rather, and Karen, you brought this up, maybe a better way to think of it is why do interest rates, or excuse me, why does the economy matter to interest rates? So we're going to talk about that today. And specifically, we're going to talk about how interest rates affect both bond and stock prices. That's right. But before we get started today, we have a confession for our listeners. Listeners, what you are about to hear today will have jargon. Cue the dramatic music. We said it. It's true. Our guest today simply could not be asked to speak without jargon. Um, uh, Well, because jargon, I think, is his primary language, Kobe. (laughs) Um, But listeners, please don't leave us. It's going to be a great show. Kobe and I will be translating all along the way. We've created a glossary of terms for you as well, a link to which you can find in our show notes. And of course, as always, if you have any questions at all, please reach out at info at getthesense.com. That's info at getthesense.com. Okay, and there is one last housekeeping item that we have before we can start today's main event. This podcast was recorded on March 19th, 2021. There are some time-sensitive pieces of information in here, and things may have changed by the time you listen. Well, after a lot of to-do and a large build-up here, I guess it's time to introduce our special guest for today. So joining us today is Beacon Point's Chief Investment Officer, Michael Dow. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you here. Kobe and I can attempt to stumble through the accreditation that you have and the reason that you are the perfect person to be on this podcast, but... I think our listeners would rather hear from you. Can you please tell us a little about yourself? Well, sure. And thank you very much for having me. It's a great joy and pleasure to be on the show, especially given today's 
topic. So why why would you guys want to know what I think about this stuff? And it's kind of a um, a nerdy answer, but I've all I've cared about for the last thirty years is interest rates and 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 credit markets. So um, I've spent um, most of that time investing and taking risks on behalf of clients in bond portfolios at either uh, PIMCO, uh, where I was a fixed income portfolio manager, or Solomon Brothers prior to that, where I was a, a bond salesman, and uh, at UBS Global Asset Management, where I ran a couple of different businesses there, including US Core Plus Bonds and um, Emerging Market Corporate Debt. And I was also the head of Global Sovereign Research. So everything that I've done in my career really comes down to the question is why interest rates are important, and where do you think they're headed? And why does it uh, why does it matter for for stock markets? So happy to join, happy to be on the call today. Thanks for for having me. Well, thanks so much. Like I said, very well put, better than Kobe and I could have done ourselves. And you know, Michael, we have a commitment on the podcast to our listeners, which we will not ask you to adhere to. Uh, that we like to break down the jargon. So um, again, we're not asking you to do that, but it is uh, probably impossible to to describe your experience without using terms like private credit or sovereign research and so forth. So um, suffice to say, listeners out there, Michael is extremely qualified. He's accomplished, very knowledgeable, well-connected, I will add, and clearly, as you can tell already, the perfect guest to join us for today's episode. So thank you again for being here. You bet. So on today's episode, Michael's going to walk us through interest rates, He's going to walk us through how they work, what moves them, and as he just mentioned, how they affect both stock and bond prices, which is important. It's an important conversation to have uh, in this environment right now. But first, Michael, on this show, Karen and I always start with a segment that we call What's on Our Money Mind. And I think listeners out there would certainly want to hear what's on your money mind before we jump into the main event today. So Michael, what's on your money mind this week? Kobe, I... It's an unoriginal answer, again, given the topic of today's podcast, but it's the one thing that's on my money mind all the time because it has an influence on just about every other money mind question you would have, and that is the level and direction of interest rates. So it's, it's, it is the most important price that you can determine in an economy, and it is the thing that influences things like mortgage rates and auto loans and consumer credit business decisions, whether to build a factory or not. And although it's not, uh, we're not taking it down to what I would call the individual micro uh, on a microeconomic level, the individual or household level, I, I, I think about it more as a macro uh, concern. And, and it's because it has this pervasive influence. It, I'll say it again. It's the single most important price in the economy that you can, you can determine because of its, uh, because of its broad uh, pervasive influence. I think that's a great answer, and it gives a lot of credibility to the fact that we have you on today as a guest. Uh, if what you're thinking about this week is interest rates, that makes you perfect for this conversation. And for listeners, I think if you go back and listen to quite a few of our previous Money Minds and you look at them through the lens of interest rates and what we're going to talk about today, it might add a lot of clarity. I am guilty very often, as listeners know, of bringing forth a Money Mind topic without an answer. And I'm thinking, talking with Michael today and before the show and in previous interactions that maybe interest rates is the answer to uh, a lot of my money mind questions I've posed without an answer. So I'm going to have to go back and review that. But uh, Michael, like I said, we're excited to have you be a part of it. Thanks for sharing what's on your money mind. We're about to hear a lot more about that. And I think it's time to start the main event here. 
And today we're talking about interest rates. So it's probably a similar answer to what you just gave. Uh, but Michael, give us a little bit more detail. Why are we talking about interest rates today? Well, maybe the best thing to do, Kobe, first is to identify what we mean by interest rates, because there are a number of uh, interest rates of interest that you could examine or analyze or talk about today. But mostly what we're talking about when, when we say interest rates are going up or interest rates are going down, we're talking about U.S. Treasury bond interest rates or the risk-free interest rate. If you buy a Treasury bond, you're, you know with, with a high degree of confidence you're going to get your money back. If it's a 10-year bond, you're going to get it back in 10 years. The government's going to pay your coupon. They're known as uh, risk-free assets. And, and a lot of other interest rates that you could talk about are actually uh, priced off of U.S. Treasury 10-year bonds. So you have this level of 10-year treasuries, and then everything else that has the same maturity just trades uh, above it. Uh, think mortgages, for example. If a 30-year mortgage is at 3 or 3.5% 3 today, and 10-year treasury yields are at 1.75% today, there's that difference between the 1.75 of the 10-year treasury and then mortgage rates. Everything just trades above and off of the interest rate. So if 10-year treasuries go up, then mortgage rates go up. If 10-year treasury goes down, mortgage rates go down. So when we say interest rates, what we're really talking about here is the U.S. Treasury 10-year interest rate. And it is now currently at 1.75%. And, and that's really a lot higher than it was six months ago. In fact, it's about uh, 100 basis points higher than it was six, six months ago, or one full percentage point. And, and that's important uh, in, in one context. And frankly, it's interesting to put it in a different context. The one context is it really happened very quickly. And that's why we have a little bit of angst today and why perhaps interest rates is a hot topic. It's because interest rates have moved up very quickly. But in the grand scheme of things, they're still incredibly low. And we look at data going back 230 years, and we see a move from you know, 50 basis points, which is where the low was last August, to 175 basis points today. And we think that's a pretty big move. It's a triple of interest rates. But it's really not a big deal because the average interest rate for the last 230 years is closer to 5%. So we're still at one-third of the average of the last 230 years, even though it's a triple on, on where it was eight months ago. So, Michael, you just shared with us a good deal about where rates are currently. And thank you for that. That was a great explanation. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what factors affect interest rates? You had alluded to treasury yields affecting the, the price on other rates. But what, what factors affect where that base rate starts? That's, that's a great question, Karen. And the answer is there's really two main things that you want to know or try and forecast when you're thinking about looking at uh, the direction of interest rates. Today's interest rate, the 1.75% uh, that you see in the, uh, in the marketplace is, is composed of really two factors. The two factors are a real interest rate and inflation expectations. And the real rate of interest is, I, I want to put a fine point on it. When I say interest rates are the most important price that you want to know about an economy when trying to figure out what the level of activity is or where the economy's headed. The real rate of interest is what you care about. And the real rate of interest is the building, the fundamental building block of, of, of interest rates. In addition to the real rate of interest, and I'll explain a little bit about how that comes about or where, where, how it's determined, uh, you have to add inflation expectations. 
That's one way to do it. The other way to do it is look at what the nominal interest rate is in the marketplace and subtract inflation expectations to get real rates. So just to just to be really clear about the terms we're we're using here, nominal interest rates are what you see. Those are observable in the marketplace. And that's the 1.75% on the 10-year treasury yield that people see when they're talking about what's what's the interest rate. Inflation expectations are also observable, as are real interest rates in the U.S., because we have something called Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, or TIPS. TIPS are actually offered at a real yield, and so you know exactly what the real yield is in the United States on the 10-year Treasury, and it's about minus 50 basis points right now, just to use round figures. So the real yield on offer in the United States is minus 50. The nominal yields plus 175. That means inflation expectations are 225 basis points for the next five or 10 years. So 2.25% inflation is what's expected in the marketplace right now. So that that that's a lot of numbers. And there's, you know, later we'll go through, we'll have a quiz and on the white, I'll get on the whiteboard and we can, you know, work through it, the math, but that's a that's it. The most important thing to know is Real interest rates are what matters to activity in the economy, and real interest rates are actually determined in the long run by the supply and demand of of money. So it's the price of money. Real interest rates are the actual price of money, and that's determined by the supply of money and the demand for investment. So savings is the supply of money. So how much people want to save determines the real interest rate. People want to save more at higher interest rates, and they want to save less at lower interest rates. They want to uh, they want to invest more at lower interest rates, at higher interest rates than at lower interest rates. If you're thinking about it from the uh, from the investment side of the things, but if you're thinking about it from a business, a business wants to invest more when interest rates are low. They want to borrow because they're going to have to borrow money to invest. So they want to borrow at lower rates, and they want to borrow and invest less at higher rates. It's the intersection of savings and investment that determines what the real rate is in the long run. Inflation expectations are determined in, in the short run by things like oil prices and bottlenecks in the economy, um, labor productivity, and other things. So combining all of that together, it's kind of a, a you know, macro 101 kind of a lesson is real interest rates are driven by savings and investment, inflation expectations by bottlenecks or slack in the economy. Putting the two together you get to the interest rate that you see in the marketplace today. So we look at both of those uh, factors independently when we're trying to make um, a forecast or, or put a forecast out for where we think interest rates are headed. And I, I think this is pretty evident. You can't really have a discussion about interest rates without a discussion around inflation. And so, you know, there's, can you can you maybe tell the listeners more directly what is meant when when um, when we say that interest rates are a tool that the Federal Reserve has to to help control inflation? Uh, that's a that's the that's the key. Uh, understanding what the Federal Reserve does and what we think they're going to do as it relates to monetary policy has been the most important component of any successful investment program for the last 10 or 12 years since the great financial crisis and the um, implementation of a bunch of non-traditional monetary policy tools to go beyond just setting of short-term interest rates. So so the, the, the Federal Reserve, which was created in 1913, has a mandate now from the Congress. The Congress wants uh, the Federal Reserve to manage the economy to the extent that the Fed 
should should shoot for maximum employment and stable prices. And they have a third unwritten mandate, which is financial stability. But for our purposes today, trying to get to the lowest level of unemployment while keeping prices stable is, is what they're supposed to do. And again, it's important to define terms here. Uh, prices mean consumer the consumer price index. The consumer price index is the average change in prices that consumers typically face over, over a year or so. If you look at the CPI year-over-year year change, that number has been running you know, 1.6, 1.7% per year. It's going to go much higher uh, in the future, and we can talk about why. But the Federal Reserve's job is to keep that inflation number, that, that, that consumer price inflation number, at or below 2%, or historically, that's what it's been. How, how do they do that? They do that by setting the short-term interest rate here in the economy. That's called the federal funds rate, or Fed funds. When the, when the, I mentioned earlier that interest rates have are the most important price in the economy. Well, the Fed sets the interest rates by setting the Fed funds rate. And what they do is they either uh, in, encourage or discourage economic activity by households and businesses by raising or lowering interest rates. And to encourage household spending or to encourage business investment, you lower the interest rate. Well, the interest rate's been at close to zero for you know the last couple, well, for the last year. And for much of the last 12 years, it's been at or near zero. In an attempt, the Fed's been trying to pump up the economy by keeping interest rates very low. When inflation rears its ugly head, the Federal Reserve raises interest rates in an attempt to dampen the economy it's not too harsh a statement to suggest that the Federal Reserve's job in an inflationary environment, and that has been the rule, inflation has been the rule for most of the last 40 years. In an inflationary environment, the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates and throw the economy into a recession in an attempt to raise the unemployment rate and take the pressure off of prices rising. That's what the Federal Reserve has effectively done for much of the last 40 years. So basically, if the Fed wants to stimulate the economy, they keep rates low. Low rates equals cheaper borrowing for business. Cheaper borrowing equals the more the business can turn around and use that money for investing. Equals a boost to the production, growth, employment. All things are a grow. For me and you, Kobe, low rates mean we spend less on mortgage or car loan interest, and we have more money to spend elsewhere. It also means that we aren't going to earn much for keeping money in savings accounts. So we are incentivized to invest it. So if you can't remember all the specifics of how interest rates affect the economy, just remember low interest rates make it uncomfortable to just put money in our savings accounts and we're better off investing or spending it. And when the Fed wants to slow down the economy, when inflation is higher, aka too much money circulating, they set rates higher for all the opposite reasons. One question for you quickly, Michael, is you said it had been the rule for the last 40, 40 years, and it sounds like maybe that has changed, or maybe I'm reading you wrong. So can you talk a little bit more about that, how it's, how it's been the rule and how that's maybe changed in recent years? Sure. And this goes way back before most of the listeners will have been thinking about interest rates, but, um, and, or either have been alive. Neither of you guys were looking at rates in the 1970s. Uh, but back then, on October 7th, 1979, 
interest rates in the United States were, were lifted from low levels to, to 12 or 14 percent by the end of 1979 and into the 1980s, the Federal Reserve took interest rates to, to uh, closer to 21 to 22 percent on Fed funds. And they did that in order to create a recession and take the inflationary pressures out of the economy. Why? Because back then, inflation was the real issue. Uh, you had oil price spikes. Uh, you had uh, a misunderstanding about how monetary policy affected prices. So we've learned a lot in the last 40 years. But suffice to say, the Fed declared war on inflation when Paul Volcker raised interest rates uh, 10 or 12 percent back in October of 79. That was the beginning of the war. The war is over now and we can declare victory in the post-Great Financial Crisis period, because subsequent to 2010, 2011, the Fed's been primarily fighting a battle against deflation, not inflation. And, and that's why you had all the quantitative easing and the non-traditional monetary policy that we've seen in the last 10 or 10 or 11 years is an attempt not to fight inflation, which isn't a problem anymore. That war's over. Now we're trying to fight the deflationary war. And, and in fact, that was, uh, we could declare victory effectively on the war against inflation and pinpoint a day when the Federal Reserve changed their operating framework and literally changed, uh, and again, I don't want to go into jargon, but it's called the reaction function. The Fed reaction function is simply, what does the Fed do when something happens? And the Fed historically would immediately raise interest rates when inflation got to 2%. But now that inflation isn't the problem, but deflation is the problem, the Federal Reserve is not going to be so quick on the trigger to, to raise rates. And they codified that in something that Jay Powell talked about at the Jackson Hole meetings on uh, August 27th last year uh, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And he said, basically, we're going to move to average inflation targeting. So instead of a trigger function, which is used in the war on inflation, now we're going to use average inflation targeting in the war against deflation, and we're going to let inflation run hotter for a while. Average inflation targeting just simply means what it says. Inflation is going to average 2% over a period of time and not be a trigger. Now, as soon as inflation hits 2 the Fed's not going to raise rates anymore. So they're going to let inflation run a little hot now, indicative of the fact that they're trying to make up ground against the forces of deflation that have ruled the, uh, the U.S. economy since the great financial crisis. So in the past, the Fed has used what we call a target inflation rate. Uh, and upon that inflation getting to said target, the Fed would react. They would react by increasing interest rates. Now that's changed. The Fed is now targeting average inflation. So as folks out there can understand, if inflation in the past has been below 2%, Inflation can now drift above 2%. And when we combine those two, our average inflation will be closer to 2%. And so uh, that's why we know we can expect in the future that the Fed is going to allow inflation to run a little bit higher as they target average inflation instead of a set inflationary target. I think listeners out there are getting a very good sense quickly here of why we brought Michael in to discuss this because he's a wealth of knowledge. And so I think that makes a lot more sense. And I've been taking notes, not just because you threatened a quiz, but I've been taking notes myself just to use uh, with my clients and in conversations that I'm having. So thanks for walking through that for us. And I know 
inflation affects interest rates and interest rates affect investment. So I want to I want to pivot and talk about that a little bit. Can you talk to us specifically about how interest rates, the rising and the lowering of interest rates affects bonds and bond pricing? Sure, that's an easy one because it's a direct one-to-one link between the price of a bond which you can observe in the marketplace and the yield which you can also observe those things are, are, are inversely related. That is to say, when there's pressure for interest rates to rise, bond prices decline. And the reason for that is simple. So a bond is a fixed income investment, and it's paying you a fixed coupon interest rate. So just to use an example from a couple of years ago, the U.S. Treasury 10-year bond would be uh, paying a 3% coupon, for example. And if the interest rate environment was such that um, the market rate of interest, so, so that's not as a point in time. At a point in time, you get issued a bond at, and you're going to earn 3%. A $1,000 bond is going to pay you $30 a year in coupon interest income. That's that's a 3% coupon means in, 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 uh, in practice. If market interest rates go up and now the treasury is issuing bonds at a 4% coupon, what do you suppose happens to your bond that's paying a 3% coupon? Is it worth more or less? Well, Kobe? Pick me. Pick, okay, Karen? It's worth less. It is worth less. It's not worthless. It's just worth less. Why? Because there's a direct link between the cash flows associated with a 3% bond and a 4% bond that suggests that the 4% bond is, uh, is going to be worth about, and this is just an average number, 6 or 8% more. So that bond. Your your 4% bond is going to trade at par, but your uh, your 3% bond is going to trade at 93 or 94 cents on the dollar. That That's approximately the relationship between an increase uh, of 100 basis points in market interest rates and a 10-year note. So, so there's this, that the, the direct relationship is a function of the fact that it's a fixed income security. It's a fixed coupon paying security that fluctuates in price based on the market interest rate environment. Kobe, what would happen if interest rates went from 3% down to 2%? Is your 3% bond worth more or is it worth less? It's worth more. Yes, it is. And can you tell me why? Because you need to be compensated for the difference between the 3% and the 2%. That's exactly right. So the direct link between interest rates and bonds should be should be fairly clear. It's it's not it's uh, there is no other way to calculate the price of a bond as as market interest rates move up and down. You warned us of a quiz, but I don't think Karen and I were ready for the quiz during the podcast. So keeping us on our toes, and that's good. We got the answers right. That's even more uh, important there. So uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. And and this is a conversation that I think Karen can agree. We're having a lot of these conversations with our clients right now, and I know you're having a lot of these conversations as well when it comes to uh, when it comes to bonds and bond pricing. So Kobe. If I have $100 to invest and I'm in the market for a five-year bond, let's say I can buy a brand new bond directly from Acme Corporation of America, which by the way, whatever happened to Acme? We still use that in cartoons, right? I, that's a great question. I don't know if what happened with Wile E. Coyote and I know he was very involved with the Acme uh, Corporation. <laughs> he was he, pivotal. He, he was very pivotal to their revenue stream. So I'm not <laughs> sure uh, after that show came to an end, it may have really hurt their bottom line. Yeah, you might be right. But in any event, 
let's say I'm in the business for a bond from Acme Corporation for five years and Acme is willing to pay me 3%. But you, Kobe, you hold a $100 bond with Acme that you bought five years ago that will also mature in five years that is paying 5%. Would I prefer to get 5% or 3%? Obviously, I want the 5%. So your bond is looking pretty good to me. But in order for you to be willing to sell your really good, beautiful looking 5% bond to me, knowing that you can only get 3% today on new bonds, I'm going to need to make it worth your while. I'm going to need to pay you more for the bond than what you would receive if you just held it for the next five years. So your bond being more attractive to buyers like myself would sell for more than the $100 you are due to receive in five years, plus the interest you would collect between now and then. We refer to that as the bond trading at a premium, by the way. We can reverse this concept entirely. If Acme wants to pay a higher rate of interest on bonds, then sorry, Kobe, your bond is no longer as attractive and I'm not going to be willing to pay you as much for it. In fact, I'm going to pay you less for it. I want to ask you a question. Uh, Are you familiar with a steel man argument as opposed to a straw man argument? No. Does it have anything to do with interest rates? It doesn't. But in this instance, we're going to make it be related. So a straw man argument meaning that you make an argument, but it's not a very strong argument, right? And you're kind of bringing forth your opponent's position, but you bring forward your opponent's position in a weak way that you can easily blow over. It's a straw man, right? A steel man argument is an argument that is uh, you're making your opponent's argument, uh, but you're making it in a really solid way, right? Their best argument, they're making it in a realistic way. So because of other conversations, and and I know the world that you operate in, I know bonds are a really difficult conversation right now. But we have this this discussion with clients who are living off of their portfolios, right? Maybe they're in retirement. Maybe they just have fears about investing in general. And so they have bonds in their portfolio. So we're talking about an environment that might be more difficult for bonds. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that. But also, can you talk a little bit about the steel man argument for holding bonds still in this environment? Sure. I I understand now exactly what you're saying. The the simple answer is that bonds will continue to provide an anchor to windward and and ballast in a in a in a storm. So should the what I would call the risk markets, which would include the stock market and other other riskier assets, if there should be a bout of risk aversion, if we get um, a slowdown in the economy for whatever reason, or if risk taking is um, if there's a if there's a there's not a premium available to to get people to take risk and all of a sudden the market turns and that's how the market works right it doesn't doesn't work completely rationally in terms of a discounted cash flow model it's fear and greed so if you get a bout of fear like we had a year ago it's likely that uh, bonds are going to do what they've done historically which is provide a bit of a cushion in the portfolio it's the it's the whole basis of the argument uh, to build diversified portfolios and stick with your strategic allocation over longer periods. So um, what I would say about it is you're going to get less of a cushioning when the interest rates are historically very low for the very simple reason is that they don't have as far to drop. And, and that's where the cushioning comes from. We talked about the prices of bonds moving inversely with interest rates. In a risk-off environment, if the stock market's going down, interest rates tend to go down as well. And when interest rates go down, 
bond prices go up and hence the bonds in the portfolio provide a cushion. That is going to continue. That is not going away. It's just there's a lot more cushion when bonds are at 3% yield. They can go from 3% much lower than when they were at 1.5%. They just don't have as much room uh, to go. So um, there's no there's no reason to 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 necessarily uh, void the portfolio of fixed income instruments or bonds. You just need to be smart about which kind of fixed income investments that you're you're investing in. So it sounds like Michael, and please correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like the the core reason for holding fixed income in a portfolio, which historically has always been for diversification and providing that downside protection, if if there's mania in the risk markets. That reason hasn't gone away in light of a low interest rate environment. And really, if we if if we say low interest rate environment, I guess it's not new, right? We've been we we could argue we've been in a low rate environment for many years um, relative to the years that you spoke about, like the late seventies. Uh, but I think what what it sounds like you're you're wanting to do is just set proper expectations for the listeners about the level of stability and and um, downward downside protection that bonds may provide going forward. Maybe just not as much as historical, but certainly still um, not completely worthless in a portfolio. It, it, no, no question. And and but further to the uh, evidence to support the challenging bond environment that we're in is the thing that's different today versus at any other period, except for a brief period in 2012 and 2013, is that interest rates, the nominal interest rate, the one that's observable, this is the 1.75% on 10-year treasuries that we can see in the marketplace, is low, but inflation is now higher. So back to the whole, what's the most important price in the economy? It's the real rate of interest. And the practical implications of the current environment are that we're in a a world of of deeply negative real interest rates where we weren't a year ago. So nominal interest rates are very low. Inflation expectations are higher than they've been at any point in the last 10 or 12 years. And the combination of those two things drives real interest rates below below zero. And for a while, we were at minus 100 basis points or minus 1% real interest rates. What's the problem there? The answer is not only does the nominal yield at very low levels provide somewhat less cushion, but you can think of it in, in, in and I'm gonna use jargony terms, as a negative carry trade now, which is not positive for clients. Clients are losing money versus um, inflation, which means the current interest rate environment is actually purchasing power negative. So if you hold 10-year treasury bonds at a minus 50 basis points real yield, which is kind of where we are today, you can you know for certain if you hold that bond to maturity that you're going to be giving up 50 basis points or half a percent a year in purchasing power because inflation is higher than the yield that you're earning on the bond. So the most important thing is to try to earn a positive real yield, a positive a yield that's a, a, that has a margin above inflation. If you're not getting a yield above inflation, it's purchasing power destructive and you need to rethink the process. So bonds will provide ballast, but now it's a negative carry trade, as we say in the business, which just means in the in the world prior to the COVID recession, it was a positive carry trade. So you at least got some kind of a positive real yield on your bonds. But now with inflation creeping up and interest rates being suppressed by quantitative easing and likely to remain repressed for a period of time to try and work off 
the debt mountain that we've gotten. And I'll talk, that's a, that's a whole nother podcast on financial repression, but know, know that um, the results of the, our longer term thesis related to interest rates is they're going to be lower for longer. Inflation is going to be higher than it has been in the past. And the combination of those two things equals negative real interest rates, which just makes the burden of holding bonds a little bit greater, even though, even though in a risk off, they will still do what they're supposed to do. So, Michael, I think you've covered this. Uh, you've touched on answers to this question um, in piecemeal. Um, so I'll just ask the question and have you put them all together uh, for the listeners. But uh, you've mentioned expectation, inflation expectations are higher than they have been in the past. And many are wondering what it is about inflation today that makes expectations higher uh, when really we didn't see a lot of higher inflation following like the 2007, 2008 financial crisis. And, and what, what are your thoughts on um, the suggestion that really inflation shouldn't be much of a, of a near-term concern until the economy is operating at full capacity? So Karen, you're right to say that um, the difference, there is a difference between what happened in, in the post-great financial crisis period after 2008 and now that makes inflation much more likely. Uh, let me give you a list of things because it's a really powerful argument to suggest that we're in a, in a different world. The most dangerous words in investing are it's different this time, it almost always isn't. But I think, I think we, we can all agree that things are, aren't the same. We went into the COVID recession with banks in perfect health, which means the economy was gonna recover faster. The great financial crisis was a banking crisis and, and bank capital was a problem. So there was no credit provision. There was no lending. As a result, the economy was going to take a lot longer to recover. So economic recovery will be swifter. Uh, we had a hole, we put a hole in the economy in, in second quarter of 20, 2020 in the COVID recession. That was much deeper than the hole that was created in 2008, 2009. The response to that hole in the economy in 2009 was about 800 billion in fiscal stimulus. And over time, an, a, a lot of monetary accommodation and easing and first just lowering interest rates to zero and then quantitative easing or money printing. That came over a period of time. Last year, it all everything that they did, the, the policymakers in Washington, DC, whether they were the fiscal policymakers or the monetary policymakers at the Federal Reserve, Everything they did took them six months to do it. We did it in six weeks in, in March of 2020. So the, the banking system was in much better shape. The response, both fiscal and monetary, was orders of magnitude greater, which means we're going to get back to normal faster. And in fact, the risks of being even of overcooking the economy with all of this stimulus, both monetary and fiscal, is much higher now than it was before. And that is the proximate cause of inflation. So let me let me introduce another concept here because it's really important. There's a speed limit to the economy. It's called the uh, potential potential GDP, and then there is a the actual GDP. And when the economy is running at below its potential, that's there's something created called an output gap, and the output gap was about two trillion dollars in, in the second quarter of 2020. Well, you can take that output gap number and then try to look at what the fiscal stimulus is and taking into consideration some more nuanced issues like the multipliers on fiscal stimulus and how it affects the economy, 
not dollar for dollar, but maybe one and a half dollars or you know half, it depends. There's a lot of different ways to stimulate the economy. But if you just take the total sum total of fiscal stimulus, plus all of the quantitative easing that's been happening, and it's, it's, a, it's a bit like comparing apples and oranges, but I think it's a good analogy. There's $13 trillion worth of stimulus that's out there and ready to be deployed over the, over the course of the last year and over the next year or so that's, that's meant to fill a $2 trillion hole. So we are going to get back to potential GDP sometime in the second half of 2021. And it isn't, the, the US economy is not a speedboat. It's more like a super tanker. So there's not really a lot of scope for what I would call surgical precision here. So the Biden administration now, on top of what uh, was done under the Trump administration in terms of developing fiscal stimulus and, and producing fiscal stimulus, is going all in and is going to not, the, no one's taken any chances here that the economy might, might slip back into a recession. And, and because of that, the fiscal stimulus, the size of the fiscal stimulus is so much greater than the, than the output gap that we saw that it seems inevitable that we will blow right past potential GDP and be, be running, at, running the economy hot potentially overcooking it. And it's that kind of scenario where inflation tends to result. Uh, if you think about the definition of inflation being, um, uh, you know, too many, too many, too much demand and not enough supply. Well, that seems inevitable for the second half of, of 2021. So I think we're going to have to have you back on for a discussion on financial, financial repression in general and then inflation in general, because we did do an episode on this, but we kept it high level. And I think for those who'd want to listen to something a little bit more in depth, you on as a guest would be a wonderful conversation. I will tell you, Michael, if you haven't listened to that episode, I did in that episode claim that a gallon of milk in the 1980s would have cost, I believe, Karen, it was 50 cents, which got a good uproar of laughter uh, in this group. And I had to justify that I've been allergic to dairy for 20 years. And so I just hadn't bought any milk. It wasn't that I actually thought that. But uh, it'd be, it would be good to have you on for an episode about that. Let me ask you this, though. Uh, as, we, as we continue the conversation here, is there anything about interest rates and bonds that you haven't talked about and we haven't asked that you think listeners should know about? I don't think so. I would reiterate, though, that a negative real interest rate environment is very challenging for the bond component of a portfolio. I mentioned it before being something like an akin to a negative carry trade. It's just, you just want to keep up with, with inflation so you can maintain purchasing power. So that's the real, the real issue. There, there's things you can do in the bond portfolio that will allow you to keep up with inflation. And that means taking, taking on additional risk. Because, of course, treasuries are effectively risk-free. Everything else isn't. And, and high-quality municipal bonds, they're not risk-free like treasuries are, but they have very, very low default rates and, and distress issues in municipal, high-quality municipal bonds, so AA rated and above. But by dipping lower into the credit spectrum, into single-A or triple-B rated bonds that are that are less credit worthy, but still investment grade, you can, you can combat some of this negative real interest rate drag on the portfolio. By, by looking at uh, high yield corporate bonds, you can combat the, the issue related to negative real interest rates and find some positive real yields. And going into um, things like private, private direct lending or, or opportunistic credit portfolios under the broader heading of private credit, 
is another excellent way to try and uh, uh, at least offset with a portion of the portfolio. You want to keep a, a, a slug of the portfolio. You want to remain in these higher quality bonds to provide the ballast to the portfolio that we talked about earlier. But you want to offset at least a portion of the of the purchasing power uh, erosion that's occurring in negative real yields by by moving out the credit spectrum. And and the reason you might feel confident about doing that in an environment where is because the environment we're in right now is one where the economy looks to be um, recovering pretty dramatically. And we may see one of the highest GDP prints in the last 20 years, in 2021. And when the economy recovers, these lower credit quality bonds tend to do okay. In fact, they tend to they tend to do really well. So, so you get, there's a couple of things you can do as it relates to the bond portfolio, but the main theme is as long as we're in a negative real interest rate environment, having a conversation with your advisor about what, how to offset a little bit of it um, is, I think, very, a very productive conversation to have. So, Michael, we recognize that there are opportunities uh, to help diversify some of the bond, the, the, the impact that low interest rates will have on the bond piece of a portfolio. Um, and I think most often when we think about interest rates having an impact on investments, uh, we do think more about bonds. But the reality of it is interest rates affect stock prices too. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that relationship and why interest rates matter to the stock market? Yeah, it's, it, it, the, the, the overarching theme, I think, if, I hope of today's, if, if you take away nothing else, uh, remember I said this, that interest rates are the most important price you can know in the economy. And I, and I meant that as it relates to the real economy, so it, interest rates affect economic activity, but absolutely interest rates affect the uh, the financial economy and the capital markets, uh, and how and the price of 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 capital assets, not just bonds. As we talked about, interest rates have a direct relationship to bond prices. But if you think about what an equity price is, what what's what's a stock worth? A stock is priced on its future cash flows, an estimate of its future cash flows, discounted back to the present using a discount rate. So there's, there's two variables that you have to forecast if you're, if you're trying to understand whether stock prices, an individual stock is, is trading at a, a fair level or if it's trading rich or above its fundamental value or if it's trading cheap or below its fundamental value. The fundamental value or intrinsic value calculation is, is just uh, the, a very simple dividend discount model that that most financial analysts are quite familiar with. And again, just to put it a fine point on it, it's a bunch of cash flows that are represented by corporate profits out into the future, forecasted out, you know, five or 10 years into the future. And then because a dollar in the future is worth less than a dollar today, you'd rather have it today, you discount it using, uh, you know, tried and true methods of uh, of, of of call it net present value calculations, and and the and the real interesting thing or what ties this all together is that the discount rate that you're using to discount the cash flows back to the present as it as it goes up, the cash flows are worth less. As it goes down, the cash flows are worth more. So an, another way of saying that is as interest rates go up, the net present value of a cash flow related to a stock goes down, and hence the stock price goes down. And if you're just calculating that over 500 stocks, for example, the 500 biggest, then the S&P 500 will go down. So if, if on the other hand, what you've seen over the last, uh, part of the reason why the stock market recovered so quickly in the last year is because interest rates declined very rapidly. 
and there's a, and that caused the uh, the net present value to uh, of a cash flow stream to increase. So while the cash flows were being written down, that is the numerator of the equation, were being written down because we were headed into a recession and no one knew what corporate profits were going to be. At least it was being slightly offset by a lower discount rate because interest rates were were going down. And that's one of the tools the Fed is laser beam focused on when they're lowering interest rates. They want to bump up both the stock market and they want to lower mortgage rates to make house prices go higher because then the consumer will feel wealthier. That's called the wealth effect. And if the consumer feels wealthier, they'll go out and spend and that'll support economic growth and and help um, uh, stimulate a recovery. So that's, by the way, going back to one of your earlier questions, uh, Karen, that's really what the Fed's trying to do when they're lowering interest rates as it relates to the consumer. They're trying to boost the wealth effect and consumption, personal consumption, uh, in the economy. And the consumer is two-thirds or 70% or more of the economy here in the U.S. So the, the bottom line is interest rates uh, don't just affect real activity. They do affect capital assets like stock and bond prices. And they affect them directly through a formulaic method that 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 we all you know uh, understand, those of us that have been looking at either corporate finance or investments for, for years. It's just... Um, it's just what it's just what happens. So that is why, and I, I can't stress this, why an interest rate forecast and understanding the components of interest rates, inflation and real yields, and trying to forecast those effectively has been the most important thing to know just about uh, every single period for the last you know thirty years or so that i've I've been investing money. so it's it's really important to summarize simply. To determine the value of a business, to decide how much one share of stock in a business should be worth, there is math involved. Part of that math is to forecast future cash flows the business will have. But since a dollar tomorrow is worth less than a dollar today, because inflation, there is a discount that has to be applied on that future stream of cash flows. The lower the discount, the more the cash flows would be worth today and the more or higher uh, the stock price would be. The higher the discount, the less the cash flows would be worth today, and the lower the stock price would be. Michael, as you shared that relationship between interest rates and bonds, I can't help but think back the last couple of weeks. Um, Interest rates, that treasury yield that you've mentioned a handful of times has gone up. And certain parts of the stock market have gone down more, more, uh, uh, more prevalent in certain spaces of the market than others. Uh, I'm going to challenge you to answer this question in a yes, no, or sort of response. Is the reason we've seen the market go down in the last few weeks related to interest rates? I'll challenge you uh, to the... Um... The fact that even though interest rates have gone up pretty dramatically, we did hit all-time highs again yesterday. So, or actually Wednesday after the uh, Federal Reserve. So, while interest rates have caused more equity volatility, and interest rate rise, the rise in rates has caused a bifurcation in in the types of equities that are going up and down. And what I mean by that is, we tend to look at uh, U.S. stocks in large cap versus small cap, growth versus value, and then all U.S. stocks versus international stocks. And and the idea that the increase in interest rates has not yet caused the overall stock market to go down, 
it has caused, for example, a NASDAQ to be challenged. The NASDAQ didn't hit a record high on Wednesday, the 17th of March, but the Dow and the S&P 500 did after the Fed's FOMC meeting, which wrapped up on, on Wednesday afternoon. And the reason is because Chairman Powell was pretty dovish about interest rates. That is, he said he was in charge. He's going to take, you know, we're going to take care of it. We're not going to raise interest rates until we get the job done. All of those things were good. Stocks went up because they were calmed by, by the language of the Federal Reserve chairman. But just to be clear, and going back to the dividend discount model that we talked about and, and discounting cash flows, again, I don't want to, it's not a math quiz we're going to do later, but it's a, it's a concept quiz. And the concept is growth stocks do better when interest rates are declining, when, our, when they're declining and low. Value stocks do better when interest rates are, are moving upward because typically that happens in a cyclical recovery and value stocks include banks and energy stocks and things like that. And those industries tend to do better, but more to the point, they tend to do better because as interest rates rise, you're discounting cash flows that are more front end loaded in value stocks. Whereas the cash flows, the, the corporate profits for a growth stock are further out into the future and lower interest rates make those future interest rate payments more valuable. So growth stocks do better when interest rates decline, value stocks do better when interest rates rise. And we've seen that rotation in our cyclical theme at Beacon Point, which is rates and rotation. Rates and rotation means as rates rise, you're gonna see a move out of large cap growth into large cap value, out of large cap into small cap. And frankly, as interest rates rise here or inflation increases here, it hurts the dollar. So international stocks tend to look more favorable than US stocks. And that pretty much sums up the, the relationship between rates and stocks. Karen, to your point, if interest rates go much higher and if they go higher quickly instead of grinding higher, if they grind higher, we, the, the economy and the stock market will handle it. If they spike higher, that will cause the market to immediately re-rate the cash, the cash flows from the stock market in a, in a way that could cause the stock market to decline fairly rapidly. I anticipate that if interest rates rise dramatically, that the Federal Reserve will step in and do what they're supposed to do in a crisis like this, or what we come, no, they're not supposed to, what we've come to expect them to do, which is to buy bonds in order to reduce interest rates. So back to the earlier point, the direct link between bond prices and interest rates, if the Fed's buying bonds and increasing the price of bonds, then interest rates must be coming down. And that's what they would want to see to calm the stock market if we got an unexpected spike. Does that answer the, the question? It definitely did. And I'm going to say that was on the, it wasn't the yes, it wasn't the no, it was on the sort of <laughs> range of responses. I agree. Excellent. I agree. <laughs> I was going to step in there at a moment right at the beginning where Michael said he was going to challenge you. Instead, I was going to say, Michael, we do the challenging on this show. Uh, we're, not, we're not to be challenged when we ask a question, but thankfully he answered it well and Karen responded well to the challenge. So uh, I thought that was positive all the way around. And thank you, Michael. I thought um, you, you have said enough in this episode already that I have a whole sheet full of notes, uh, even for my own knowledge. So it's been valuable. I know it has been valuable for listeners as well. I want to ask you a couple things here as we wrap up. Uh, that way folks can process and prepare for the quiz that we warned them about, uh, which we will certainly follow up with, is, is a couple things. Your role here at Beacon Point. I know not everybody that listens to this uh, podcast is a client of Beacon Points, but I'd love to hear just you explain briefly your role here uh, at Beacon Point. And then also, there's a lot of resources that Beacon Point puts out that you're involved with. And so can you talk to folks about those resources and how they can access them? 
Uh, sure, Kobe. So as the chief investment officer, I am responsible for developing our macroeconomic forecasts, which are the raw material for the asset allocations we do, and primarily to identify um, themes uh, and catalysts in, in the investment market. So what we try and do is um, be the engine of, of growth for, for the portfolio once you've established a particular plan with your advisor. So where the plan is the, the roadmap, I, I view investments as kind of the car that gets you there. And my job is to build diversified portfolios that reflect the investment themes that are available by doing uh, thorough uh, research on the macroeconomy and on asset valuations to, to try to position portfolios to take advantage of the, uh, the environment we're given. And most importantly, to reduce risk. So what I like to tell clients is that we're not taking any uncompensated risks uh, on your behalf. We're, we'll get you to, uh, to the, achieve your investment objectives with the, uh, with the fewest bumps in the road possible. We're not trying to hit a home run every time. We're just trying to get you the rate of return that's embedded in your plan without uh, without taking uncompensated risks that would cause bumps in the road. So it's pretty it's pretty straightforward. Uh, it's a great it's a great job. I love this job. Um, it's um, it's it's something I've, I've I've been passionate about for for decades, and and um, I think it's a it's a great spot for for me to be able to to try and help clients achieve their objectives. And what about resources? Tell folks that they've enjoyed this show. They want to know where they can learn more about you, more about uh, your outlook and your your take on things. I do uh, an intermittent podcasts. Um, it's called Markets in Motion. It's also on the Beacon Point website, right next to the to the really great podcast um, link. It's um, it, it's uh, it comes every two or three weeks. I try to get one out because there's always something to talk about in the capital markets, and it's usually um, a, a current investment theme or how does the uh, how does the current uh, environment fit into our themes and, and thesis. The other thing I do is a quarterly uh, presentation on macro and markets where I try and put the most recent quarter into context and to, uh, to articulate again where we see value in the marketplace and, and, and why we think the economy is headed in this particular direction and why, for example, certain assets might, uh, might do well and, and to try to give um, clients a better understanding of how we think about the world and, um, and how we can best help you uh, get where you want to go. Well, Michael, we really appreciate it. You know, I have had the pleasure of working with you since you joined Beacon Point in 2018, I believe. Um, and it's just been, uh, and I know I speak for both Kobe and myself, it's been a treat to have you added to our team of resources. And we um, feel more confident than ever in the guidance that we give to clients, thanks to your sage uh, advice and and um, experience, frankly, that, that uh, stands behind us now. Uh, you know, Kobe and I do a little thing at the end of each podcast uh, where we like to share with our listeners uh, lessons we have learned. These can be lessons learned um, about money. Oftentimes they are a financial lesson that we've learned, maybe by way of our own experience or maybe a client lesson learned that we'd like to share with others. Uh, I am going to put you on the spot here because I know we did not share with you uh, this part of the, the podcast. Uh, 
thinking back to your years of experience in the industry, can you think of the single most valuable lesson that you have learned? I have a feeling the word interest rates is going to be in this. <laughs> I could be wrong, but um, can you think of, of the biggest lesson you've learned that you'd be willing to share with our listeners? It's interest rates are, of course, tied into my answer, but it's really more broadly related to risk taking. But then again, there is no ability to assess risk taking without assessing the path of interest rates. But I'll say this, that the lesson I have learned is the time to invest and to take risk is when everyone else is running for cover. And I'm reminded of, of, of a very sage investor who was uh, someone who I didn't work directly for, uh, but uh, worked with uh, PIMCO when I was there, Rob Arnott. And he says, what is comfortable is rarely profitable. And that's just another way of saying uh, when, the, when, when everyone else is panicking, it's time to reassess your strategic plan and frankly reallocate towards it, which generally means adding to risk at the, at the moment where you would most, uh, most want to not uh, take any kind of risk. And maybe you'd prefer to just um, get out of the market altogether, which is not what you want to do. March 2020 proved that again. There are a number of periods of time in my career where I can think of that being the case. 2001, uh, 98, when the Brazilian in the uh, Brazilian Rai crisis, 2001.com, you've got uh, uh, 2008 and 2009, obviously, um, February of 2016, the taper tantrum back in 2013, any number of periods where if you had done what you felt you should do, perhaps in your heart, and, and instead of letting your strategic plan rule, uh, rule the day and then take risk, uh, you would have. Uh, uh, you might not have done as you might not have achieved the objectives uh, on 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 schedule. You're, you're, so that that would be my that would be my uh, my one item from the past. The things that I've learned is what's what's profitable is rarely comfortable. I love that lesson learned. I think Kobe and I, as advisors, you know, sitting next to our clients, uh, a, a large part of our job is to help assess a client's tolerance and preference for risk to your point so that we aren't selling for or inclined to sell into a bad market and in doing so i often asked questions you know clients the question you know it's easy to say we should buy low and sell high but effectively what that means in practice is that i am going to tell you we need to sell the things that are doing well and buy the things that appear to not be doing well and so in practice, it becomes counterintuitive, but in theory, we all agree it's exactly what we should be doing. And so um, I appreciate you putting the fine point on, on how important that is. And coming from your 30 plus years experience in the industry, I think it probably drives the point home um, a little bit more than maybe Kobe and myself can do. So thank you for that. Invest forwards, not backwards. Uh, uh, yes, you're welcome. Well, Michael, I know you keep a very busy schedule. And so we are very thankful that you took the time 
uh, to speak with us today. And I'm sure you're going to drop off of this and probably have to jump onto another uh, discussion around interest rates. If I had to guess, hopefully you get to go enjoy your weekend. We are recording this on a Friday, but uh, if I know you as well as I know you just after a few years, I imagine your day is not yet done. So thank you. Thanks for taking the time. We'll certainly continue to point people to the resources that you put out because the, the feedback is nothing but incredible. We're very thankful for uh, your insight. And thanks for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. I look forward to, uh, to speaking to you uh, again soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Find us on social media at Get The Sense and online at beaconpoint.com. That's point with an E. Be sure to check back regularly for new episodes. Until next time, keep your dollars and we'll keep our cents.